Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. The first show we're going to talk about on Smart Arts this morning is Black Ties, presented by two First Nations companies, one from Aotearoa, New Zealand, one from here in Melbourne. Uh, and I'm joined in the studio by the Artistic Director of Ilbidgeri Theatre Company, uh, one of three outstanding First Nations theatre companies here in Australia. The Artistic Director is Rachel Mazza, who's also the Co-Director of Black Ties. Rach, lovely to have you back in. Good morning and great to be here. So... Am I right in thinking that, that Black Ties is not only unique in kind of in terms of the collaboration between uh, a Maori theatre company and an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander theatre company, but have there been any other trans-Tasman theatre company collaborations like this with Whitefellas, or is this really a, a kind of landmark oh, groundbreaking good piece of point. theatre? Oh, isn't that funny? I cannot think of. Because I was I, racking my brain, and yeah. I, I'm not sure there has been there's been a collaboration like this before. And yet, and yet, right at, as we speak, there is another Aboriginal Maori um, collaboration on Hide the Dog with Nathan Maynard teaming up with um, Jamie McGaskill the, as co-writers to create a um, kids show. I was like, okay, it's on. We're, <laughs> we're collaborating. <laughs> You've started a trend. <laughs> well, no, I think we've literally been going in parallel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, to, to be honest, there's been some like massive um like over over the years a really strong connection building between um first nation uh what we're calling the tri-nation kind of conversation that's actually been going for decades between um uh, new zealand australia and canada um and so these these uh collaborations have actually come out of those those long relationships yeah which i've had an extraordinary honor to be a part of yeah so how did the collaboration that's led to black ties (laughs) come about a credit goes to a couple of people actually because um uh, you know, you know, it's that thing where you're kind of someone puts an idea in your head, but then then to follow that up with a check, <laughs> which is you know basically Stephen Armstrong from Asia Topa um, was like really interested in uh, you know if you guys are interested in doing a collaboration in our with any of our our neighbours. Um, and basically put $10,000 on the table and said, he's just to go and scope it out. So the ball started rolling. Not long after that, we were touring Jack Charles versus the Crown over to Auckland Festival. And Jonathan Bielski, the artistic director there, was like, oh, you have to let us know if you're ever doing a, I think you're doing a collaboration with any of our mob over here. And it was kind of like, oh. I put two and two together. I was like, oh, funny, there's this other guy. <laughs> anyway, basically that got the conversation going. And I've known Tai Nui and um, Amber Kareen, who are the founding members of Tarehia, um, for for years through these tri-nation dialogues that have been going on. Um, and it was an obvious fit. Uh, we were there at the festival and yarning and next thing it was like, yeah, why don't we do something? Um, and so began this journey. And then the very first time that the... Um, uh, the team got together was for a the, the labs, the creative labs that Asia Topa had had on two years ago was our first time in the room together. I actually wasn't there, but um the what what started out as four writers, I don't know what we were thinking, <laughs> uh, insane. But anyway, it was this incredible writing team that started brainstorming this this idea, and it very quickly became 
man, it's, here we are, these coming together of these two companies, these two cultures. It's got to be a wedding. <laughs> oh, and, and the principal thing was, uh, what's the kind of show we want to make? It has to be the sort of show that you, your aunties, or your uncles, or your grandmothers, or whatever, want to, will, will have a good time. Yeah. And I love the fact that one of the things that you've made, uh, this kind of uh, collective endeavour, uh, it's a show for mob. Uh, <laughs> white fellas like me are invited to come along and attend, but you're not making theatre for me. You're, you're making theatre for yourselves and for your people, which is fantastic. That's exactly how we were. It was like, yeah, yeah, our, our kind of white fellow mates are, are absolutely invited to the wedding. <laughs> but it's exactly right. It's not for you. It's for, that, for our, that auntie there or that family there. And one of the most rewarding and I suppose um, – you know that kind of like yes, we got there was a was c- sitting out and mingling in the audience afterwards and having a c- couple of old aunties like from when we did the premiere season in Sydney Festival, and there was a couple of aunties that I that I'd known for ever from Redfern, and they were like absolutely laughing, crying, and and totally going. This was this was for me. I was like yes, that's right, it was for you. <laughs> so the fact that it's a uh, it's a rom com effectively, it's a romantic comedy about a coming together of an Aboriginal family and a Maori family at a wedding. Was it always going to be a wedding? Was that the idea right from the start? Very first idea. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because and it was it was absolutely because we all know that genre. Um we all um and it was and it was very quickly became, yeah, but what's our version of that? What would that look like? So so um it just was the perfect vehicle. Like as I said, the 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 well, the the concept within the play absolutely mirrored the journey that we had to go on as two cultures coming together and having to navigate our differences and our similarities and you know and, and it was the, a, you've also been able to take the piss out of each other which is something that uh, I love as well <laughs> I haven't seen the show yet but everything I've read about it and some of the other interviews and some of the reviews the fact that the the two playwrights involved uh, one of whom John Harvey has been a guest on this show a few times mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the fact that people have been effectively daring each other to go nah you can go further than that you can <laughs> you can push more buttons than that it and was, get yeah, away yeah. with stuff that kind of other people wouldn't be able to do. And it was really important for us um, to kind of not be scared of going there and not tiptoeing around that stuff because it, it was this – what yeah, what was really important to us was the kind of full – you get the full package, you're like in all its complexity, who we are as black fellas or as Maoris um, – and, and, you know, we come with all our baggage as well. So there was no romanticising. It was really – that was very a very kind of um, clear task was a, a not – we don't want to be glossing this around and, you know, doing the romantic or gooboo thing. You know, it was like, no, 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 we're human and we come with our, our baggage. And that was the journey that our characters in the play had to go on. One of the things that really appeals to me about the work, and as I say, I've not seen it yet, but it's had a Sydney Festival season and I read some great reviews from there. It's now had a, uh, a season at Perth Festival as well. So it's coming to Melbourne, kind of tweaked and tightened and road tested. But the fact that because it's a rom-com, because it's, there are familiar tropes that we're, we all know, it makes it easier to step into the world. And that's something you're inviting the audience to do without giving too much away. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, yeah. The yeah. fact that you've created, that really the, the audience aren't just coming to see a show, they're coming to a wedding. Oh, absolutely. That was one of the first, that, like I said, the very first, um, you know, what are the, what are the things, the tick boxes, the things that this thing needed to do? Well, one, it needed to be accessible to our mob and, and, 
had to be joyous. Like it had to be fun. So the things that, that make a good fun night, what are the ingredients you have when you have a good night? It's got to have music, laughs and food. Oh, and drinks. <laughs> it was like, hey, hey, let's do it. And so literally you get it all. You know, it was that was really that was that was um yeah, that was that was right from the start, that was what it had to be. And the fact that it's a comedy then also allows you to weave in some some fairly serious politics at times as well, mm-hmm, acknowledging mm-hmm. the fact that uh, the Maori people in Aotearoa, New Zealand, have a treaty. We don't, for example. Yeah, yeah, that was um, that's probably the thing. Aside from that, the fact that it's uh, we we got there. It's it's a fantastic experience um, as a night in the theatre. It's beautifully written, extraordinary cast, like the talent. I often find myself. Um, you know, I feel like I've been part of this incredible thing, but it, it feels like it's it it's its own thing, and I'm just lucky I had the privilege of being in the room at the time that this magic was being created. It's really quite phenomenal how extraordinary the work is. But the thing that I'm probably most most proud of, because I, I'm, I'm I suppose I'm my it's in my DNA, but the the theatre that I was born with is, you know, it's theatre because to make to make because you got something to say and theater as a political tool and so you know I'm constantly questioning myself why I'm going to waste good arts money on making shows it's got to have something to say so I'm the thing that I'm really most super proud of is that I can we can that they're woven in there but so smartly and so uh, it's very I, I think we've done a brilliant job <laughs> but there's this you know there's a particular scene for instance where the two matriarchs are, are kind of having it off you know like in their both doing their makeup in the toilet um looking at themselves in the mirror doing their lipstick and there's been a real standoff between these two because at the end of the day both of those women have uh, fought tooth and nail for their whole life for you know we have our Fitzroy um, mum who's been part of the whole political movement of Gertrude Street and the setting up of the health services and the legal aid and and that and it's you know hard fought for she's a stolen generation story so that she will do anything she needs to do to keep her family together. And this idea of her son marrying out to this other culture is an absolute threat because what next thing is going to be moving to New Zealand? Who knows? And similarly, our matriarch on the, on the New Zealand side, um, she's been part of that whole um, reclaiming of the language and making it official in their, um, in, in their, as a national language in, uh, in New Zealand, Aotearoa. Um, and, and here she has this daughter that she's brought up in her language, in her, knows her dance and her kapahaka and her poi, you know, all of this. She's culturally strong, but she's married out. She's wanting to marry this bloody Aboriginal, you know, like... <laughs> So so these two matriarchs here they are in the bathroom you know arguing about who has the who has the nicest whites you know it's <laughs> hilarious but it's deeply deeply political you know so we at this extraordinary way that our writers have been able to while you're laughing say some really pithy poignant um um stuff it's quite extraordinary it's been it such a joy to be a part of you know, like theatre as as a really powerful tool. 
If you've just tuned in, my guest is Rachel Mazza, who's the artistic director of Ilbidgery Theatre Company based here in Melbourne. She's also the co-director of Black Ties, which is having its Melbourne season uh, in the Pavilion at Art Centre Melbourne from the 21st, uh, so from tomorrow through to the 29th of February, and I'll give the details for how to book in just a moment. But Rachel, I have to ask, you're the co-director. How does that work? What's it like to relinquish control to a degree, to have to kind of, I mean, because really Really, the characters in the play are having their own kind of trans-Tasman tussle and relationship mm-hmm. and eventually, hope we hope, finding some kind of rapport. That, I presume, mirrors the process that you've had with the, the co-director. <laughs> you hit the nail on the hammer. No, the hammer on the nail. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. The But that was what was critical to this, to the integrity of this work, was that it was a navigation and a meeting in the middle of our two cultures and so the, uh, we had our co-writers, one from either side. We had our, um, our cast, a half-half all the way down. Our three-piece band obviously cut, cut th- three people in half. Um, uh, it's, and, and, and the co-directing. So it was absolutely essential that there was that um, authorship and, and contro- uh, creative and cultural and political control over each other's uh, stories. And so... That's come with its challenges, absolutely. It's been, you know, abs- but uh, as well as it's been incredibly enriching and I've learnt, oh, my God, I've learnt so much. Um, it's been really quite extraordinary and we continue, you know, like to this day, we're still kind of navigating and working out that space. You know, co-directing, without a doubt, is definitely has its challenges, you know, um, Anyone who works in the theatre out there, the director is kind of like that whole you make you have the kind of you know you'll you'll kind of toss around and play around in the room, but then the director's the one that makes the ultimate kind of choice or the decision in the end. So in this case, there's two people having to make that choice. So every point along the way, there's there has to be this kind of dialogue and navigation and negotiation. And sometimes you kind of go, eh, I probably wouldn't have chosen that, but I'll, let's go with that. So you're constantly, you know, having to kind of give and take. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. The production is called Black Ties and is on as part of Asia Topa at Art Centre Melbourne from tomorrow through to the 29th of February in the Pavilion. It runs for two hours and 30 minutes, including interval. Uh, it is wheelchair accessible, which is great, and you can book at Asia Topa, so Asia, T-O-P-A, asiatopa.com.au. Uh, I understand it's pretty much booked out, but I'm sure there'll be some standby tickets and some people will cancel and yeah, there yeah, might be a couple yeah. of extra tickets released. You never definitely know Definitely give it a go. So definitely try. And otherwise, we're just going to have to hope, Rachel, that it comes back. <laughs> He's hoping. Yeah, well, we go from here to Wellington Festival and then Auckland Festival. There's a bit of a, bit of a downtime. But yeah, really... Um, uh, you know, we've kind of had the the show in different configurations in the three theatres that uh, that we've been in, so it's quite adaptable. I mean, it's, but it's but it's a beast. There's 13 of us on stage. Yeah, it's pretty kind of. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, anyone as, out there with lots of money, um, yeah, yeah. Cool. <laughs> as I said, black ties on from the 21st to the 29th of Feb. Bookings at asiatopa.com.au. I've been chatting with its co-director and the artistic director of Ilbidgery Theatre Company, Rachel Mazza. Rachel, it's been lovely having you on the show. Always awesome to talk to you. See you next time. Okay, see ya. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. 
my next guest has joined us in the studio to talk about an upcoming exhibition at the National Gallery of Victoria, which is running from the 28th of February, so opening next week. The exhibition is called Japanese Modernism, and joining us to tell us all about it is uh, the NGV's Assistant Curator of Asian Art, Annika Aitken. Annika, welcome to Triple R. Thank you, Richard. Great to be here. Lovely to have you in. So... Modernism and Japan is not necessarily something that immediately kind of springs to mind when I think of modernist art. No. And that's possibly because the the discourse around modernism has tended to focus on places like what was happening in New York or London mm-hmm. or even Sydney, for example. So tell us about modernism and the advent of modernism in Japan. Kind of how kind of influential and and radical was it for traditional Japanese artists, for example, to see this wave of new work come in? Absolutely. Well, it was a very radical period. And you're right, it's one that we don't know a whole lot about. Uh, the exhibition is focusing on a very brief period of about two decades. Um, and it's been kind of conveniently bookmarked by two really major uh, events. Uh, the 1923 Kanto earthquake, which essentially raised... Um, Tokyo and most of Yokohama to the ground, everything was destroyed, uh, and the end of the Pacific War um, in 1945, where Tokyo was bombed. So there were these two periods of massive destruction, uh, but between them was a very vibrant and very exciting era of really rapid modernisation. Um, the destruction of the earthquake in 23 meant that uh, the major cities in Japan had to uh, rebuild very quickly, which gave... Um, you know, great new opportunities for uh, new architecture, new transportation systems, uh, department stores, coffee shops, cinemas, all of these really incredible kind of new uh, consumer-focused concepts um, that were very much influenced by what was going on in Europe at the time. And they created a lot of new job opportunities uh, for Japan's youth uh, so that they could come to the city, they could be financially liberated from their parents and the sort of traditional family values of Japan at the time, uh, and they could come and live in cities and uh, partake in this new, very exciting economy. Uh, And a lot of the art in the exhibition um, is really inspired uh, by by this young generation. It's kind of interesting to think of the influence of the West on Japanese art in this period, Mm. given that uh, only a a few decades previously it was Japanese art influencing the West. So people like Van Gogh collecting prints, for example, or other artists kind of admiring uh, kind of the range of Japanese work that they were exposing mm. to. So suddenly the, the tables are completely reversed. Well, there's this flow going back and forth um, all the way through. And one of the really fascinating aspects of Japanese modernism is this sort of fusion of uh, traditional Japanese art concepts, uh, techniques uh, and also uh, traditional motifs uh, really fusing with uh, modernist designs. So uh, one of the um, focuses of the exhibition is on modernist fashion. And the easiest thing for um, people who wanted to partake in a modernist lifestyle in Japan cities uh, would be to depart from traditional clothing altogether and and wear Western dress. But there was this very strong affection that a lot of people held for traditional dress. So we see a lot of uh, kimono that is incorporating these incredible geometric, bright, modernist designs that were a complete shift from what was, you know, traditionally considered to be acceptable. Yeah. Now, one of the things uh, you mentioned that I wanted to pick up on, the fact that this 
the changing architecture, for example, allows people to move into the cities mm. from, from elsewhere. With that, I'm imagining we would also see uh, uh, a rise in the number of independent young women in the same way that in Australia uh, around the same period, for example, you suddenly had kind of uh, young women working in, in roles in which they suddenly had their own wage for the first time. They could be financially independent of their families. Uh, and so, and then they also are saying, well, we have a disposable income now. What can we spend it on? So you're seeing not only the rise of modernism, mm-hmm. the, the rise of kind of feminist feminism as well, but also the rise of consumer culture. Absolutely. Well, actually, this um, increasingly socially liberated uh, lifestyle for young women is a big focus of the exhibition. Um, you know, women were, for the first time, living apart from their families, they were earning a salary, and they could um, engage or, or consume as they um, as they chose. They didn't have to wear the clothes that their parents chose for them. Uh, traditionally, women would have lived at home until they married, uh, but now they could, you know, they could go out, they could drink, they could dance all night, they could smoke, uh, they could socialise with whoever they liked, um, you know, they could consume whatever sort of entertainment they found interesting. Um, so it was a really radical era for young women. And in many ways, these were the first um, sort of socially liberated, financially liberated women in Asia. I'm reminded of a story from my own family. Uh, my uh, late grandmother, for her 21st birthday in the 1920s, um, she was told by her mum, you're a young woman now, you can kind of choose what you want to do, here's the money for your birthday, go and do something with it. She came back with her long hair cut short into a fashion, very fashionable bob, uh, at which point her kind of my grandmother kind of was like... I trusted you to go and do, make some kind of adult decision and you've done this radical confronting thing. It must have been enormously confronting for the traditional, more traditionally minded Japanese parents and families and the older generations Absolutely. to see these young women and young men suddenly rejecting traditional Japanese values to a degree. There was a lot of anxiety that developed around this, um, you know, modern girl or moga, as she was known in Japanese uh, for short. Um, and actually, interestingly, that you mentioned the bob haircut, we have a wonderful quote that's on the wall in the exhibition that's detailing just this. It's a, an, a young aspiring novelist during the period, Yuriko, who cuts her hair very short and her mother um, is absolutely horrified and says, you know, people will think you're one of these new women walking around. Um, because traditionally, actually, long hair had been really a symbol of beauty in Japanese culture. So to cut it off was considered at the time to be, you know, a very shocking, very masculine thing to do. And why would any woman choose to do so? But it really took off and it became absolutely the trend of the moment. And um, a lot of the works in the exhibition really represent this um, sort of symbol of liberation. And and most of the women are shown with very short bobbed hair, with marcelled hair, um, you know, a lot of European hairstyling fashions made their way to Japan and were embraced wholeheartedly. There were perms, kiss curls. So certainly that sort of, um, you know, modernist uh, personal grooming um, was very much a part of it. Now, if people go to the NGV website, www.ngv.vic.gov.au, you can see some of the key works from the exhibition. And I wanted to discuss one or two of them. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the lithograph, the first subway in the east from 1927. I love the perspective of this look and kind of I love the way that it's celebrating something that we now take for granted, a, a public transport system. But in the 1920s, this idea of cutting-edge modernism department stores, public transport, uh, the electrification of rail networks and so forth. Why is this 
piece of art so significant in the exhibition? Well, this is actually one of the most iconic posters from the era, to be honest. It's it's really, um, you know, for those who are interested in Japanese modernism, it is very closely associated with this time. Um, Japan or Tokyo had the first subway in Asia. It was the Ginza Line and it opened in 1927 and it completely changed the way of life for people. Um, people would queue for hours along the... <laughs> the platform so that they could have their turn riding through the line um and yeah it really uh, represented this new period of um pleasure seeking and leisure so suddenly people could travel which hadn't been a concept that was really um entertained before so people were you know traveling to the seaside uh, on the weekends to swim they were skiing you know onsens became something that uh, people could access more more easily in um, different regional areas so it was um yeah an absolute shift in the way of life previously where people had been quite constrained to one area now, one of the other things that when I think of uh, of the modernist movement uh, in art uh, and particularly thinking kind of the, the 1920s, the 1930s, I'm thinking art deco, I'm thinking kind of decorative art. Mm. So not just kind of uh, the paintings that we might associate with the period or the architecture or the, the, the clothes and hairstyles and so forth, but um, small uh, personal items and objects, mm. whether, uh, I don't know, cigarette lighters or, uh, or glassware and so on as well. How is that aspect of the period reflected in the uh, the Japanese modernism exhibition at the NGV. It's very much a part of it, actually. We have an incredible installation of 100 cut glass tumblers that is very beautiful. It's being installed right now. Uh, and we have a beautiful cut glass sake set. Um, glass cutting was uh, very much associated with French Art Deco, but uh, became very popular in Japan at this period. It's uh, very hard to find now. These works are incredibly rare, so you know we're very lucky to have amassed such a large collection uh, of decorative arts representing this period. Um, we've got a lot of bronzeware as well, um, lacquerware, um, a lot of, sort of traditional Japanese art forms that are really incorporating these uh, various modernist motifs. So there's this beautiful uh, fusion in the exhibition that is um, quite incredible. In terms of the the presentation of the exhibition, uh, I guess what are you, what are you hoping that it will achieve in terms of broadening awareness, not only of modernism generally, but this particular period in Japan? As we said, we began the conversation acknowledging the fact that what a lot when a lot of people think of modernism, they think of mm. the West. They don't think of Japan or other kind of uh, regions in Asia. Do you hope that the exhibition will kind of have a, an educational influence on a generation of people, for example, who come to see it? Absolutely. Well, at this, you know, during this period that's represented in the exhibition, Japan was really one of the most sophisticated, most cosmopolitan metropolises in the world. Um, and a lot of graphic design, fashion design, you know, aspects of, of Japanese art and design that is so um, deeply appreciated internationally today really flourished during this period. So it was really a starting point for a lot of, um, you know, really important influences that Japan's had internationally, even today. The exhibition, Japanese Modernism, is on at NGV International, 180 St Kilda Road, Melbourne, 
you can't miss it, really, you can't. Uh, it's on from the 28th of February until the 4th of October. Entry is free, I understand. It is, so please come along. More info, jump online, and you, as I said, you can see some of the, the key artworks as well as learn more about the exhibition, www.ngv.vic.gov.au. Uh, I've been chatting with the Assistant Curator of Asian Art from the NGV, Annika Aitken. Annika, just before I let you go, um, it wouldn't be an exhibition without a range of public programs and floor talks. Is there anything uh, along that line that you want to quickly... Mentioned. There are. On the opening weekend, uh, there are a couple of floor talks. Uh, the senior curator, Wayne Crothers, will be talking on the Sunday about the Art Deco aspect of the exhibition. Uh, I will be speaking after him uh, on the, the modern girl or the mogga that I've been speaking about earlier. So jump online. All those details will be on the website, ngv.vic.gov.au. Japanese Modernism at NGV International, running from the 28th of Feb until the 4th of October. Free entry. I'm very much looking forward to checking it out even more. Now, after our conversation. Annika, thanks so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks for having me, Richard. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Now, time for us to talk opera, and in particular, the uh, a new production by Victorian Opera of Salome, based on uh, a work by Oscar Wilde, uh, a play by Oscar, which when uh, Richard Strauss read it, I think he kind of went, I need to adapt this. I also need to cut it back, to par it back, uh, so it can breathe on stage, because uh, kind of opera and theatre, different art forms. Joining us to tell us more, Elizabeth Hill Cooper, who is the CEO of Victorian Opera, and is also working as the choreographer on this show, so wearing a couple of hats. But, uh, Elizabeth, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. Very great pleasure. So Salome itself, based on a biblical story, which doesn't even really name Salome, the, the young woman whose licentious dance encourages her father to lop the head off John the Baptist. It's a fascinating story. Why does it work as an opera? I think in this context, Richard Strauss has created this incredible landscape of music. Um, he took the text from the Oscar Wilde play and um, it's sort of documented that he he's distilled it down to a 24-hour period in Salome's day, really. Uh, she is attending a banquet with her father and mother. Uh, they're hosting the, the various tribes that come to exist in the kingdom that have been displaced. And uh, she is a young girl in, in our minds and she escapes the banquet to sort of go and have a visit with John the Baptist down in the dungeon and then her father says to her, come back to the banquet and she says no and he says, well, if you dance with me, I'll give you anything you want and it's literally that but in an hour and a half of context. So it's, it is a really exhilarating music score. It's a fascinating um, tale and, yes, you're right, they don't name her in the Bible at all so it's it's even more fascinating that it's had such success. Now, it's fascinating too that it was adapted at a time when Wilde himself had become... uh, His work was not being produced uh, on the British stage. He dropped completely out of fashion. The trials around him had led to his public disgrace. So to actually adapt a Wilde work must have been a relatively risky or radical act at the time. I... Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I also think um, we've had a long chat about this, Richard Mills and myself, that 
not only just to, I think they sort of steered clear away from the, the idea of it being Oscar Wilde's play because the translation was taken from a German text of the work. Uh, but I think we, we talk often about the fact that the score is so technically difficult to play even in this day and age, how fascinating it must have been when the scores were placed down in front of the musicians of, of the time and they opened them and probably thought, crikey, how do you play this? <laughs> well, they wouldn't have used the word crikey. crikey but yeah. <laughs> why are they? Why is it such a complex score? I think it's, it, it's a style of writing, the, the Strauss style of writing for this particular work and his other work, Electra, similar, similar stylistic writing, was an, a, a, a new technique in playing. So it it's, sounds discordant, although it's not at all. Rhythmically it changes every other bar almost it's it is a very complex way to write and therefore complex to play because to follow it was is quite a difficult um a difficult um feat i suppose also you're talking about a lot of players this is the reduced orchestration and there's about 87 players in the orchestra pit so just the vast expanse of reaching each player and the section to direct them that it's their entry is is complicated if that's the reduced playing. <laughs> now, one of the things that fascinates me about Salome, regardless of whether we're talking about Wilde's play, whether we're talking about the, the Strauss opera, uh, is that the way it, the play in particular has subsequently influenced so many artists. Because in the biblical story, Salome's dance is just casually referred to. But now the dance of Salome has taken on kind of erotic proportions, dramatic proportions. Uh, it's it's become one of the great dances of kind of, of of literature and biblical history, which for you as a choreographer must be a fascinating challenge to rise to because it's it, it's pretty much at the centrepiece of the work dramatically. It's the turning point in the work, definitely. Um, she, unless she does this act, this dance, she won't receive her reward. Uh, so it is absolutely the turning point. It's also it's also fascinating again along the lines of the writing being so difficult, this, the score to sing for the Salome character, for all the characters, but for the Salome character being the person who sings the lengthiest time, it requires a real expert um, vocalist to achieve what's desired from it. So the combination of that kind of singer that can sing the role, which is, you know, to two-thirds of the role and somebody who can do a, an erotic dance per se as it's referred to is is a difficult combination to find so the people that can sing the role and perform the role are quite rare in themselves Cameron Menzies and myself the director spent a lot of time talking along with the entire creative team about the background and the history of this particular um, character we have taken the idea in Cameron's mind Salome in this instance is probably a 13 year old girl so we have approached the dance in the sense that rather than a, an erotic dance she has been privy to probably her mother and other slave girls in the kingdom um, performing these kinds of acts and like a lot of young children would do, that they copy, they copy these sorts of movements and 
although it's it's a copy of what would traditionally be potentially an erotic move if it was performed by an older person, this is a young girl's interpretation of an erotic move. So we've tried to focus on the childlike element of that that presentation so that she's not really conscious that she is being sexual until the point when she removes the facade of the world that she exists in and that is where she she builds her inner strength to actually request the head on the platter. That's a fascinating interpretation to make because then that taps into so many contemporary concerns around the sexualization of children, yeah. for example. Uh, and uh, it also taps into the, I guess, the that notion of the corruption of children and corruption is at the heart of this production in, in many ways. Yeah, it's the centre point. It's the, it's the point where Cameron and the creative team with Christina um, Smith, Gavin Swift and, and accordingly started. The decay, the corruption of an empire, um, the lack of empathy to the, to the human nature of, pe- of persons. I think also focusing for Cameron, focusing on the ideal that when this story was written, the age of a 13-year-old girl would in, t- in today's replication be more like a 25-year-old girl or possibly even older. So, yes, all of those, all of those elements of that corruption of the work, the corruption of the elements of the persons in the displacement of the of the Nazarenes and the and the Jewish faith in the in the story being exited from the kingdom, Herod and Herodias being placed there by Rome. It's such a political dilemma that um, has been tried to and again in this twenty four hour period being tried to sort of sort out and massage through to the end result. Now, if we're talking politics, let's talk about the representation of women uh, in this production and in opera more generally. Opera as an art form has a bit of a problem with women. Uh, women are often, uh, let's see, strangled with their own hair, thrown off battlements, stabbed, murdered. There is a history of misogyny in opera. How is that reflected in this production and how is the company kind of grappling with that the challenge of what a contemporary audience will expect from a historical art form. Yeah, it, it's it's a debate that we have quite regularly at the company. Um, one of the ways that we're trying to address it, uh, I don't believe that you can steer away from the his, history of the art form, but one of the things that we're really determined to focus on in the moving into the future and have been for the last couple of years is the possibility that with the new works that we produce which we're doing on a very regular basis that we focus on addressing these these terminology and back to your first point the way we've addressed it in this particular production is we've spent a lot of time talking about the strength of the women in the piece there's a lot of strength involved in Herodias in her very brave approach to um, becoming the queen of the kingdom and then the development of the strength that Salome adopts as she understands the power that she's been awarded by her by Herod saying to her if you do this for me, I will do. 
I will give you anything. And the understanding that she then develops that I am actually the strongest person in this kingdom. So we've spent a lot of time talking about that. But I go back and I talk about, you know, our, our production that we produced in 2018, Lorelei. Um, again, the wonderful Ali McGregor, who came to Victorian Opera with this incredible idea about, about debunking the myth of the siren and rewriting the the sort of history of the the siren and the knowledge these sorts of attacking these sorts of subjects through new compositions and new works and and directing them in a in a with a woman's background and influences by women we're trying to approach all of those subject matters in that way now, if we're talking um, about power, let's talk for a moment about the power of the music uh, in Salome as well. Uh, there's a, a great quote in a post on the Victorian Opera uh, website uh, in the blog. Strauss played Salome for his father who responded, my God, what nervous music. I feel as if my trousers were full of insects. <laughs> it's, it's a, a wonderful, wonderful It's a phrase. great quote, and, but it reinforces that there is a, a, um, a, an emotional and dramatic power to the music. Oh, definitely. It's also it's also uh, we had a group of patrons in last night to watch one of the final dress rehearsals and every single one that walked past me said, my God, you can't stop engaging with that for one second, can you? And I think Richard Mills talks about that too in his approach to conducting the work. It's not a work that you can ever switch off from. It's not a work that you can ever just sit back and relax and let either the orchestra take the take centre stage or the players on the stage take centre stage, you're constantly driving it through. So it is, I can understand the quote of the nervousness in my trousers, um, but I think it's, it's, it is, again, going back to my first comments, it's such a technical score, it is so powerful. It's, it's a breathtaking score, it never lets you relax. So there's, there's not, a, not a section where you feel that you can stop and applaud and take a break. So it's not relentless, but it is persistent. If you've just tuned in, my guest is Elizabeth Hill Cooper, who's the CEO of Victorian Opera uh, and is also uh, the choreographer for Victorian Opera's production of Salome, which is on at the Palais Theatre in St Kilda uh, on the 22nd, the 25th and the 27th of February at 7.30pm. And I'll give booking details in just a moment. But Elizabeth, before I let you go, I want to ask how things are travelling at Victorian Opera, because Victorian Opera is the company most recently admitted to what was previously called the AMPAG group, the Australian, the Australian Major Performing Arts Group. Uh, so for a long time, there was a need to open that structure up to allow more companies, strongly performing companies like Victorian Opera, who are actively evolving the art form of opera rather than just endlessly remounting a, a limited scope of productions. So what has that enabled the company to do and to imagine having that financial backing that you are now getting kind of matched funding from federal government and state government to allow Victorian Opera to grow even more ambitious work? Um, I'll, I'll just correct one small thing, please, yep. Richard. We're not getting matched funding. No, okay. Um, My apologies. It, that's okay. No, no problem at all. But the recognition for, at a national level that we have been recognised has enabled us to really expand our supporting base, which is wonderful. Um, we are... We are it, 
we are very much encouraged now to focus on those new works that are, we've been talking about today. I think it's it's really important to note the company is in its 15th year and we've produced well over 23 new works in that time. It's a minimum of one per year. That's a, it's a very... A, keen point of difference for us going forward. Richard Mills is driving that that composition side of the of the company's work in great earnest. We also have managed to expand into Tasmania and often ta- offer Tasmania some operatic products. So we've been fortunate enough to go there every year and have a wonderful relationship with the TSO. It gets it allows us to focus on our wonderful partnership with Orchestra Victoria and all the works that we do with them throughout the year. Um, we're tracking really well, actually. We're very, we're very proud of where we are. We're, we, we've got a lot of work yet to do going forward. We are encouraged by the support that we are gaining. We're trying to reinvent um, the, art, the art form, the audience base. Uh, we're very proud of our accessibility. Um, you know, we have tickets from the prices of thirty-nine dollars. Uh, if you're if you're thirteen under, you can get. Any seat for thirty five dollars. So it's we we work hard to in, engage with all aspects of our audience to grow our base and to in, to improve and expand on the art form in itself. If you want more information about what Victorian Opera are up to, whether this year uh, with productions like Margaret Fulton the Musical, which I'm so delighted is getting a, uh, a return season, having seen its uh, world premiere season back at Theatre Works in the day. Uh, there's another work coming up later in the year which looks very intriguing, The Dead City, which uh, looks ominous and fascinating. Uh, jump online, www.victorianopera.com.au for more information about the 2020 season. And as I said the production of Salome is on on Saturday the 22nd, Tuesday the 25th and Thursday the 27th of February 7.30pm at the Palais Theatre in the Lower Esplanade St Kilda. It runs for about one and a half hours no interval. So if your stereotypes of opera are that you're going to be there for five hours, then think again. Victorianopera.com.au for more information Uh, and uh, jump online book yourself some tickets. You can also call 136 100 or go to the website if you would like to book. I've been chatting with Elizabeth Hill Cooper, the CEO of Victorian Opera. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 